Hebrews chapter 13, that sounded so, uh, you know, sentimental or whatever. Yeah, the finality of it. <laughs> okay, verse, beginning in verse 18, we're going to be reading through the end of the chapter today. Let's pray, or let's read, I'm sorry, let's read together. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray one more time. Father, truly this book has been a means of grace, and surely this closing section will be no less that. And so we pray as we look at these closing thoughts that you would help us to understand that these are not throwaway thoughts. These are not throwaway sentences sort of tacked on at the end, but that here we are giving essential um, principles for our Christian life. And so help us to discern what your word is teaching us today, Father. Give us your spirit in great measure. We pray that your word would work supernaturally among us in our hearts and our conscience that you would use this word to stay the hand of the sinner that is currently wounding the conscience, the conscience being such a powerful thing that you've given to us, that you would cause people to turn from whatever direction they are heading in presently, whatever secret sin is besetting them whatever it is that is keeping them from being able to declare before you that they are maintaining a good conscience and conducting themselves honorably in all things. We pray for your mercy. We plead for your grace. We ask for your spirit to probe deeply into our hearts so that we might be changed for the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Men, you may be seated. Well, that's exactly what we're looking at here at the end, the close of this letter. We're looking at essentials for the Christian life. I titled it very, really what I thought was a pretty basic title because I didn't want there to be any confusion as to what we're looking at today. And, um, of course, I was so attracted to the phrase that you find in verse 20, namely, the blood of the eternal covenant. And so much can, and we will talk about that, but really just Looking at all of these verses and what the author is giving us here, um, that's what we're going to be looking at, is essentials for the Christian life. And Hebrews is an amazing book, right? I hope that you enjoyed our time through the book of Hebrews. Uh, I have preached many books of the Bible now. Um, I don't know how long it took us to go through Hebrews. It was maybe a couple years. Hebrews taught me probably more than any other book 
I think Hebrews helped me to understand the Bible more than any other book that I've preached thus far. Maybe I'll change my tone if we get to the book of Romans ever. But Hebrews is an amazing book. It is just so comprehensive in its grasp. It is so um, deep and profound and intricate. And um, I hope to say a lot about that. But you remember that what the book of Hebrews really is, is a book that sets forth the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. It really should set the tone for us when we look at theology in general, that what the Bible is giving us is a Christocentric understanding of supernatural revelation. Uh, Like what J.I. Packer once said, he said that the Bible is a Trinitarian book that is explicitly Christocentric. Listen to the language there. The triune God of Scripture revealed His Word explicitly in a Christocentric way. And Hebrews is maybe the apex of that very thing. It is showing us that Jesus Christ is better than everything, right? Um, He is better than angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than the sacrifices. He is better than Aaron. He is better than the Old Covenant. He is better, better, better. On all points and on all fronts, Jesus is better. We're reminded of everything that he has done and why he is so supreme as our great high priest. He has obtained redemption for us and he lives to ever make intercession for us. Hebrews also gives us a deep eschatology if you've been paying attention. In Hebrews, we know that Jesus Christ... After he performed his work of redemption, he purified the purification for our sins, he ascended on high, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there is no greater way that the word of God can possibly explain to us the glory of his heavenly session, but to tell us that Jesus is now at the right hand of majesty, glory. He has entered into his, his, his heavenly enthronement. And it says that Jesus, being enthroned, is waiting for all of his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And that as believers, what are we waiting for? But we are waiting for him to return, eagerly waiting for him to come back. The eschatology of Hebrews is amazing because the eschatology of Hebrews is an already not yet type of eschatology. Yes, we are transported into the future as we think about the return of Christ, the consummation of Christ, but Hebrews is already, is also an already eschatology that tells us that what Jesus has done through the cross, through his death, through his blood, through his sacrifice, is that he has already ushered in the end times, the last days, or what Hebrews calls in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, the consummation of the ages. Jesus Christ, isn't he amazing? Everything is about Jesus Christ, what he has done. I I grope for language to try to give some approximation as to how critical and how important and how central Jesus is in the Word of God. Everything is about Christ and the Word of God. And we'll we'll come back to that. But first I want to go from all of that because I think what Hebrews is known for the most is how difficult it is. I mean, 
chapter after chapter after chapter on the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. And how much of that do you remember right now? It's a difficult book. Uh, in terms of the literary nature of this book, the book of Hebrews is the most difficult, complicated, complex Greek in the entire New Testament. It's really hard. Uh, in other words, you don't use the book of Hebrews for your first year in Greek. It's very difficult. It's like you've got to graduate to interact with Hebrews in the Greek text. It's very complex. But Hebrews is also underestimated for its practicality. And I think that's what we're looking at here, just how practical the new covenant language of Hebrews really is. So let's jump into the first essential aspect of the Christian life that we're getting here from these last verses, okay? And I want to read for us again verse 18 and 19. It says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you to do this all the more or to urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, obviously, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Um, many speculate that it's the Apostle Paul. Certainly, language like this and the mention, the reference to Timothy, the reference to those in Italy, uh, those kinds of things, the release of Timothy, all of that language, and then the language of the benediction, grace be with you all, all of that sort of gives us a suspicion. That sounds a lot like Paul. But we don't know. Uh, Hebrews did not come with an, with, an, with an author on it. Church history is unclear. Um, the best that church history has to offer is that in the ancient manuscripts, most of the time the book of Hebrews was joined to the letters of Paul because they had a suspicion that Paul wrote it. But we don't know. But we do know is what Hebrews is telling us here. More important than authorship. You can read commentary after commentary and see the scholars just, you know, debating authorship. But what's important here is not the debate over authorship, but the content of what is being said uh, in this first principle of, of, of the Christian life, which is this, maintaining a good conscience. I don't think there is anything more important in the entire Christian life for you personally, for me personally, for our spiritual good, for our spiritual well-being than what is spoken of here of a good conscience. To have a good conscience means that you have good communion. It means that you're right with God. It means that you are not currently involved in some besetting uh, sin that is wounding your conscience, that is hindering your conscience, that is weighing your conscience down. One of the things that we do during the Lord's Supper, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, we are told to examine ourselves in the partaking of the Lord's Supper so that we partake with the right heart, so that we come to the elements with a clean conscience, a pure conscience. And I think in our church, we take the Lord's Supper every month. And I like that because what it means is that we keep short accounts with the Lord so that we don't partake of the Lord's Supper if we're not right with God. That's that simple. Uh, and if somebody is really not right with God and somebody, let's say, is under church discipline or something like that, even more measures should be taken to bar that person from the elements. It's so important that we understand that God has, he has structured the church in such a way that we cannot maintain a wounded conscience, not for long. Eventually, God will get you. Eventually, God is going to hunt you down. 
If you're his child, he's going to chastise you. If you're his child, he's going to send the hound of heaven after you, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to put his thumb on the issue. Because we are not meant to be wounded in our conscience. It's a complete and total contradiction to the Christian life. Proof of that, just turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10. You know this because we've looked at this. But it is a total opposite of what the new covenant is all about. Because here we are told that we have, heart, we have had our hearts sprinkled clean. Look at verse, oh boy, we can start in verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is nothing more potent, there is nothing more powerful in the Christian life than for us to maintain a pure conscience. Spurgeon once was walking with a young man as they were just strolling down the street and he was said to have stopped dead in his tracks and the man looked at him and said, what's wrong? He said, I just realized that I was out of step with God for a moment. I had to pray to the Lord and ask Him to forgive me of something. (laughs) Talk about keeping short accounts. But the Apostle Paul also laid this groundwork for us. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because I want you to see that the conscience is connected to these other ideas. And 1 Corinthians 1.12 really gives us, you want to talk about the power, the potency um, of having a pure conscience, the vital role that it plays in our Christian life. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Our proud confidence, meaning the Apostle and his party, his ministry, his apostolic authority. He says, Our proud confidence is this, a seminary education. No. A PhD. No. Uh, A megachurch. No. Eloquent preaching. No. None of that. Uh, Our scholarly investigation, our knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. No. No. His proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. There could be no more potent thing that Paul could base the, 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 really the, the legitimacy and the tenacity of his ministry than a conscience that is pure and clean before God. He says that in holiness, this is what the conscience should be connected to, Holiness, godly sincerity, and not in carnal wisdom, but in the grace of God, watch this, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Conscience and conduct, they are inseparable. They are inseparable. The reason you have a wounded conscience is because there is fraudulent conduct in your life. That's the reason you can't sleep at night. That's the reason why you have trouble praying. You have trouble leading. You have trouble fellowshipping. You have trouble worshiping. You have trouble communing. Because your conscience is telling you your conduct is fraudulent in this area or that. And that is not God's will for His people. Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says again, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Wow. 
What he's saying is that existentially, what is going on inside of him is so annexed to the Holy Spirit of God that his internal uh, uh, warning system of the conscience, his mental faculties, his inner, his inner man is so in, 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 in tune with God that, that, that at that deep existential level, the Spirit bears witness with his conscience. Wow. This, see, this gets to our secret life. The inner man, as David said, where no one sees. David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he came to understand, God, you care about the inward parts, the inner man. You care about the secret place where no one sees. And let me tell you, church, listen. If you win the battle there, you win the battle against the, the flesh, the world, and the devil. But you can win the battle externally in the presence of everybody else and fail and lose the battle inside, in the conscience, in the inner man, in the secret place where no one sees. And you can lose the battle there and you can suffer great loss. And this can really damage you spiritually. I remember ministering to a dear saint who had wounded their conscience so bad, it seemed like no measure of counsel could alleviate the anguish. This is where we could get. We could get to this place where psychologically we are so damaged internally because we have been sinning against our conscience for so long that we become immune to the means of grace. This is why it is critical for us, and that's why I'm so grateful that here in chapter 13, that this was the substance of the prayer that he was requesting and that this is the accompaniment of his ministry because this is the heart of it all. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what is connected to the conscience? Purity, sincerity. That is what is surrounding a good conscience. But when you don't have a good conscience, there's a lack of purity and there's a lack of sincerity. You can bank on it. You can take it home to the bank. If you don't have a good conscience, is because there is some sort of impurity going on. There is some sort of immorality. There is some sort of internal insincerity. There is some sort of fraudulent thought process. Something that you're plotting. And you think God doesn't know. And you think it just matters if your wife knows, or your husband knows, or the family knows, or the pastor knows. Foolish. The only thing that matters is if God knows. That's what matters. God knows us. He sees us. What did David say in Psalm 139? I could go down to the depths of the sea. Behold, you know me. You see everything. Darkness is light to you. As a matter of fact, here, turn next to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You talk about the importance of the conscience, brothers and sisters. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, what the Apostle Paul would suggest to us is this, ruining and wounding your conscience, either through sin or, 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 or in general or unbelief in some specific area, this is typically the path to apostasy. Verse 19, keeping faith and good conscience. Nothing more important than this. Which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck 
in regard to their faith long before you embrace heresy, long before you change your status on Facebook, as many of my old friends have, from Christian to atheist or agnostic or deist, how'd you get there? Because I used to be in the prayer meeting with you. I used to be on the streets passing out tracts with you. I used to be preaching with you. I used to be serving with you. I would mop the floors of the church with you. And I looked in just by curiosity, how is so-and-so doing? It's been 10 years since I've seen him. And up on Facebook, the status is deist. How did that happen? You just wake up one day and you go from reading Spurgeon and Valley of Vision, the Puritans, reading theology, listening to Christian worship. And just overnight, I'm going to become an atheist. I'm going to become a deist. I'm going to become agnostic. No, what happens is this, is that because you never maintained faith in a good conscience, you opened yourself up and you became susceptible to the influences around you. Sin, unbelief, apostasy. That is where you will go if you are wounding your conscience, and if you are not taking radical measures to know that you have a good conscience before God and man. This is nuclear strength for Christian spirituality. This is how you're going to prosper and flourish in the Christian life. I can go on and on, and I was tempted, and I remember um, just this week in my sermon thinking, there's three more sermons here, really. But I chose to finish up and make it a clean break. Next, and this is closely connected to this one. But you notice in verse 20, the author returns the prayer. You see this? He goes from pray for us to now, in a sense, uttering his own benediction over the church. And he says, now the God of peace, which the the, uh, subjunctive construction here should be something like, now may the God of peace, that way we can kind of understand the request that he's about to make, may the God of peace, and then watch this huge parenthetical statement. So he's going to take a little detour. He's describing the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. What a great side note, right? (laughs) That's a great just kind of, you know, uh, not an afterthought, but you know what I mean, it's this parenthetical thought. And then he says, even Jesus our Lord, and then verse 21 is a resumptive verse. It resumes the, the petition. May the God of peace, verse 21, equip you. That's the request. May the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will. So what is the second essential for the Christian life? Doing God's will. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a reference to obedience. Uh, he's saying, may God equip you to do His will, to be obedient. And this is all flowing out of new covenant life. And turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to take you back to where um, the new covenant was originally promised, which was in the prophets, Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, which is consequently you know. It is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. 
Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And I've taken that to mean house of Israel, house of Judah, that this is now a reference to the true Israel of God. And you can debate me on that later if you want to come on up. Verse 32, Not like the covenant which I made to their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke... Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they will be my people. And you've heard me say this long enough and often enough to know that what this is saying is that, that this is internalizing the law of God. This is regeneration. This is, in other words, this covenant, this covenantal administration is only going to be possible because God is going to give us a new heart. And therefore, doing God's will, number one, is rooted in God's purpose or His plan of redemption. That's what this is all about. He is, after all, the God of reconciliation. He is the God of peace. And the God of peace, and and, and, and when it says the God of peace, He is the God that produces peace. And He is the God that produces reconciliation. How? This is how. By bringing up the de- from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. In other words, it is through the cross work of Jesus Christ that God is going to accomplish reconciliation with His people. And this is how we are going to be ready and equipped for every good work. It is all on the basis of God's work in Jesus Christ. It is through the blood of the eternal covenant. We could also say this. It is through the cross of the eternal covenant. Because the blood is just code for the death of Christ. Right? His sacrificial death. His atoning death. His redemptive death. His cross work. It is the cross of Jesus that is at the very heart of the eternal covenant. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. Maybe in preparation for our own study of covenant theology coming up. Here's soon to a Sunday school room near you. I think in August we'll get into this. It is the eternal covenant. Why? Because that's what Isaiah calls it. That's what Jeremiah calls it. That's what Ezekiel calls it. In Zechariah, God promises that he will make a covenant with his blood. And where, what covenant does that refer to? That's referring to the eternal covenant, which is now manifested to us as the new covenant in the blood of Christ. That's what it's eternal. This is a covenant that goes back to God's eternal counsel, God's eternal decrees. Isn't it amazing? Oh, don't you ever just stop and just wonder and, and just fascinate about this, that this is a, a fantasize, rather, that, 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 yeah, you should fantasize about this. That God, from all eternity, brothers and sisters, He had you and I in His thoughts. As He, as he looked upon the Son of His love, the eternal Son, as Proverbs says, that He delighted in before the world even was. The Son is even as Jesus said, who enjoyed eternal communion with God. God was looking upon His Son in union with those that He would choose and that He would redeem for Himself. And if you are a believer today, you are blood-bought. 
you are part of the eternal covenant with God. You are part of God's eternal purposes. Oh, you want to talk about the depth and the wonder and the marvel of God's sovereign grace. Oh God, why would you think of me thus? But he did. That's why he loved us. I guess just one verse on this order. We don't spend our whole time on this, but look at Ephesians chapter 1. You know this verse. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul makes the, co- the connection to the love of God? The Calvinists need to do this more. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The most important phrase, by the way, right here, two words. In Christ. In Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That Greek word literally means before God threw down the building blocks of, of, the, of the world. He had chosen us in Him that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Watch this. In love. In other words, God was motivated by love as He predestined us to adoption. People that don't like the word predestination, they might as well not like the word love either. Because predestination and love go together in the Bible. Fathom that. Yeah, predestination is not just for, uh, you know, just to drum up some controversy, right? Predestination is not just to get people debating. It is to get us to start contemplating the unfathomable love of God. That's what it is. Second, Not only is it rooted in God's plan of redemption, it is also rooted in God's power in the redeemed. And why do I say that? Go back to Hebrews 13. The reason why I say that is because you notice what the author was careful to connect his his prayer for. May Okay, so let's think about this carefully here, right? Back to verse 20. Now may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you for every good work. But remember... The parenthesis is this. He, the God of peace, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. How? Through the blood of the eternal covenant. But here's the phrase. He brought him up from the dead. Uh, literally, from among the dead ones. He, in other words, what is this a reference to? The resurrection. And so as we think of God equipping us, we can say God empowering us to do every good thing. What is the basis of that power? It is not your power, right? It is not your, um, it, it is not your own ingenuity. It is not your own spirituality. It is not your own resources. No. It is on the basis of God's power. So two very basic References, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, I mean, layer after layer, right? 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He prepares the works. He saves us for the work. Then he prepares the work beforehand. And then look at Philippians chapter 2. Just flip over another book to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, my, he says, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. Talk about doing God's will. Not as in my presence only, but... Now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you. You talk about the power both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, what I want, what I, what I want to point out with this is that we, we, we're not moralist. This is, this is going to totally take the life out of any sort of moralism that you might think Christianity involves. In other words, this is not because you are on the treadmill of performance and therefore God is going to see how good you do. No, 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 no. The power is God's. Uh, We're empowered by the Spirit of God. We are filled by His Spirit. We are pulling from the resources of the Spirit of God. That's why Scripture tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to bear fruit, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. I think it is, notice, notice in, back in Hebrews where the glory goes, right? Because the power doesn't come from us, the glory doesn't go to us. Therefore, he says that we are equipped to do his will every good thing as God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because it is based on his redemption. His power, He gets the glory. That's how it works. We do the work, He gets the glory. Get over it. This is the only reason why the Apostle Paul would say in Galatians 6.4, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, what he's saying is this. Apart from Jesus, we are dust and ashes. Apart from Him, we are a vile, filthy, unclean thing. We have nothing to commend ourselves before God. Uh, By the way, because of the influence of psychology today, the idea of self-abasement before God is is at an all-time low. No, and I'm serious. Um, When you start talking about yourself being what the Bible says, a worm, unclean, vile in his sight, and particularly apart from Christ, people really take umbrage with that because that's not psychologically uh, you know, acceptable. Uh, they would, in fact, say that's spiritually abusive. But isn't it amazing? Have you gotten to the place, brothers and sisters, have you gotten to the place where as you come in contact with your sin and your misery and you truly see yourself in the light of God's glorious holiness, that you, like Isaiah, say to yourself, I am ruined. (laughs) I come to nothing. Uh, Job said, I abhor myself in the presence of God. Jesus, or Peter told Jesus, get away from me. I'm unclean. And it's not until you and I get in touch with the fact that we are unclean before God. In and of ourselves, we are miserable sinners. And it's not until then that you and I can add our amen to the glory of Christ. 
One more point, because we can stay here a long time. Beginning in verse 22, and this is important for us as well, and I don't want to neglect this point. Not only is it about maintaining a good conscience, not only is it about uh, doing God's will, understanding how that works, but it's also about abiding in His Word. I have a lot to say about this. Let's read together verse 22. He says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, that's kind of comedic on the face of it. Because when you're trudging through chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and, you know, Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood and the, the typological nature of the tabernacle and the blood and heaven and earth, and you're thinking, you wrote to us briefly... I'd hate to see one of your lengthy dissertations, right? Now, 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 let me add to this, that most commentators today, most reputable commentaries and scholars on Hebrews, uh, like Peter O'Brien and pretty much everybody else, recognize that pretty much the book of Hebrews is an early homily. In other words, it's a sermon. Okay, okay, stop for a second. Go download a sermon from Rick Warren. And compare that to the book of Hebrews. What on earth happened? How did we go from the mountaintop to Space Mountain in Disneyland? How did we go from the depths of covenant theology, the supremacy of Jesus, the contemplation of the, of the depth of the redemptive work of the cross, to seeker-sensitive, consumer-driven, humor-filled, sensational preaching that is chaff and is going to burn on the Day of Judgment. I, I, I don't know that we're ready to answer that now, but maybe David Wells would be a good help for us there. If you don't read David Wells, you need to read David Wells because he has accounted for what happened in evangelicalism, to bring us so low from the depths and the heights. There are some very practical points that we need to consider when we think about Hebrews as an early sermon and the responsibility that we now bear because the majority of sermons today are non-technical, non-doctrinal, man-centered, like I said, humor-filled, application-driven, anthropocentric, man-centered. And so we can learn a lot from Hebrews. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, just to remind us that originally it wasn't like that. Originally, uh, there, there was no shame in doctrine. And I'm grateful that I'm in a church where you guys are not afraid if I preach doctrinally. I can actually use the word exegetical in my church. I can actually talk about grammar. I can actually read a Greek word to you and define it. And you, actually, and you don't get mad and want to fire me. <laughs> and I think we're going back to what Paul prescribes. 1 Timothy chapter 4, you know this. Prescribe and teach these things. Watch this, guys. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, young Timothy. Rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example to those who believe until I come... In other words, Timothy, busy yourself with this. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. You see that? 
Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And look at verse 16. Oh, the importance of this kind of preaching. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. In other words, don't go with the flow. Don't get into what's trendy. Don't change with the times. Persevere with the principles that I'm giving you here. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those that hear you. John MacArthur said, hard preaching produces soft people. Soft preaching produces hard people. And what he meant by that is, when you grow up with soft preaching, you are unteachable. Isn't it ironic that when you grow up with low doctrine, low view of preaching, low low view of, of theology, when you grow up that way, strangely enough, you become unteachable. You don't want to listen. You don't want to take heed. You don't want to study. You don't want theology. Oh, it's a madness. Isn't it maddening? It's maddening. So what can we learn? And maybe I did this as a selfish act. But what can we learn from Hebrews as a sermon? And therefore, even as Dennis Johnson has pointed out, that it's a paradigm for sermons and preaching today. Well, let me, let me just give you four points. These are quick. Don't, don't pass out on me because I said four more points. <laughs> These are quick. This book purports to be encouraging. He says, Brethren, I urge you, bear with this word of exhortation. The word that is used there is paraklesis, which is, could be either exhortation, but it has an element of encouragement. Right, And so what is truly encouraging preaching? First, just deductions from the book of Hebrews. Number one, genuine preaching is Christocentric. If there's anything that Hebrews has taught us is that Jesus Christ is the apex. In other words, every aspect of Scripture can be said to be en route to some Christological point. Everything from creation to the flood, from, a- from Abraham to Moses, from the building of the temple to the exile. Everything ultimately prepares us and is pointing us to Christ. And I've said a lot about that and His kingdom. Second, all true preaching views all of Scripture as Christian Scripture. Did you notice that from the book of Hebrews? How much Old Testament he quotes It's just saturated in Old Testament passages of Scripture. But what is the culture today? What is the climate, even in the church? What is the climate today? The Old Testament? How many times have you heard, oh, that's the Old Testament? As if that's some sort of sub-inspired literature or something. right? It's not as inspired as the New Testament. And definitely not as inspired as the red letters in the New Testament. There is like a virtual Marcion spirit that rests over the church today that minimizes and undermines the importance and the potency of the Old Testament. We can't do that. And again, as we study covenant theology here in the near future for our church, we're going to see just how extensively relevant uh, Old, Old Testament Scripture is. Third, 
preaching also needs to be hortatory, meaning the word hortatory just means that it has to exhort. What did Paul tell Timothy, right? Preach the word, Timothy. Exhort, reprove, right? All of these aspects of preaching. In other words, preaching is not just an act in intellectual tantalization. It's not just here to provoke you to think. It is here to convict you to live. Very, 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 very important that, like the book of Hebrews, that confronts us. Hebrews cuts us. It is frank. It, is, it confronts our sin. You remember Hebrews chapter 2. Beware, my brethren, that there is not an evil heart of unbelief causing you to depart from the living God. In other words, it is not afraid to confront us and apostasy. In other words, the pastor of Hebrews, whoever he was, he, he didn't shy away from the hard subjects, and neither should we, if we are going to be faithful. Fourth, preaching should be viewed as a means of grace. I urge you, brethren, he says, He says, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. You know, bear with the word just means that you have to be prepared to listen, to tolerate it, to to, to allow it to have that, that, that means of grace that the word of God is. So it is a means of grace. The preaching of the word of God is important. And, and, and my thing is this. Uh, that you should even hear the Word of God preached in front of you. Uh, not via satellite on a screen. Uh, you know, some celebrity preacher is being funneled in from some other location. I, I just, I'm a stickler on this. I'm old-fashioned, call me whatever you want. I want to see the preacher. I want to hear the thunder in his voice. I want to see the inflection. I want to see the facial expressions. I want, to, I want to go up to him after a sermon and say, Hey, what about this? Or, Hey, good word. Or, Can you pray for me? Hey, what you said minister to me. There's got to be an a, a exhortation in preaching that ministers to you directly, as direct as possible. After all, it was Jesus in the synagogue when he went to Nazareth, they stood in awe of him. They sat at his feet. They wondered at the gracious words that were fallen from his lips. And he was preaching a heavy word, remember? Because right after that, they tried to throw him off a cliff for what he was preaching. But in other words, don't underestimate the power of preaching. As you're driving the church, I know it can be hard. I know it can be You know, labor-intensive, warfare-intensive, discouraged. Uh, You feel unworthy. You you feel like, what am I going to do at church? Oh, man, you're guilty because of what's happened during the week or whatever. You're discouraged. You don't think it's going to help. Maybe you think it's rote. Maybe you think it's just ho-hum. So this is what we do. Yes, this is what we do. We abide in the word of exhortation. We abide under the preaching of the word of God because the word of God has the potential to transform your life. And if God so is pleased to breathe on his word any particular Sunday, it could be a very special time where the word of God comes home powerfully to you. I've had that. 
I've had that. I've seen the Word of God operate supernaturally. I would say prophetically, where God's Word is landing on the heart of somebody, and I have no idea why what I said is that important to you. It wasn't even part of the message, really. It wasn't even the main point, but something I said landed on you because God wanted to hit something in you and touch something in you that I didn't even design. And that was just God's living and active Word going forth and being unleashed in the church transform us and to change us because he loves us father help us to believe this help us to believe that the reason we the reason we utilize the means of grace is because in the lord's supper in baptism in preaching in fellowship in worship there is a blessing for us there's an encouragement that, that extends beyond the human vessel and that you are working directly among your people spiritually. Thank you, God, for ministering to us. And Father, I want to say a prayer for our church. I ask that you would lead us now as we venture out of the book of Hebrews and not sure where we'll go for any permanent length of time, that, that, you, would, that you would help us to go where we need to go. Lord, I I pray selfishly. Please give me the wisdom that I need to pick a good book. To pick a good section of Scripture. To pick something that is going to be really um, helpful for us. I really want it to be. I know all of your word is, but Lord, I just selfishly ask for wisdom and guidance and the leading of your spirit in this area. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I thank you, God, for being faithful Thank you for your faithfulness and study. Uh, Thank you that as I just traveled through the terrain of Hebrews, sometimes having no earthly idea what the exegesis means, that by your grace you were faithful to me. And so thank you for that. Bless your church and bless our worship now in Christ's name. Amen.